You can be seated. Well, we are concluding our uh, study on the book of Ruth. It's lasted for four weeks, and today is our, our final week. The uncommon commitment, uncommon favor, and uncommon boldness that we have looked at in the preceding three weeks and three chapters of this book now come together and find their resolution in an uncommon redemption that we read about in chapter four. And I should say that each of these, the commitment, favor, boldness, and now today redemption are informed by this key word of the book of Ruth, hesed. It's a word that means loyalty or devotion or kindness, compassion, love, this kind of seeing the other and then working toward helping that other with whom one is in relationship out of a desperate situation. These words are fueled, these, these realities of commitment and, and favor and boldness and redemption are fueled by chesed in a real way. And it's this kindness, which it's often translated, that marks God, and we should just stop there for a moment and recognize how amazing that is, that the God of the universe is said to be abounding in chesed in Exodus 34, that this is his defining feature of his character. He's a God who sees us in our desperate situation and comes and rescues us. So again, I don't know where all of us are this morning, but uh, remember that about this book of Ruth, that it reveals God as a God of kindness. And perhaps that helps maybe in your own heart and soul today in thinking about how to relate to him. So this kindness marks the living God who reveals himself. And it also marks the people of God, those who identify with him, who are known to be his people. And we see that in the book of Ruth as well. So as we look at the uncommon redemption of chapter four today, we'll see again that it is a redemption fueled by kindness or chesed. And uh, we'll look first at the chesed of human characters in the story, particularly Boaz and Ruth, and then second at the chesed of the Lord. For they actually are similar, but different in a key way. And they fuse together in the story of Ruth to bring about an uncommon redemption that chapter four celebrates. And that continues to be the case today, that God works in and through the kindness of his people to bring about and increase his work of redemption in the world. So let's look first at the Hesed of Boaz in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, this opening scene at the city gate. It's the city gate in the ancient world is like the city hall of our world. It's where official and legal transactions can occur and take place. And Boaz has gone to this one place in Bethlehem where he can actually do that which he said he was going to do, that which he promised to Ruth on the threshing floor the night before. Remember back in chapter one, we have this contrast between Orpah and Ruth, these two daughters-in-law of Naomi. Orpah took the ordinary route and returned back to Moab, but Ruth took the extraordinary action of clinging to Naomi and going with her back to Israel, despite the fact that she would be a foreigner there and, and vulnerable. Well, in the same way here in chapter four, we have a contrast between Boaz and the other redeemer, the one, the nearer redeemer, which highlights for us the kindness, the chesed of Boaz. So just as Boaz sat down in verse one, we get 
And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And I would encourage you to follow along with me in your Bible or in the bulletin where the text is printed as we go through this text together. And this is another sign of God's providence, much like in chapter 2 when it just so happened that Ruth came upon the field of Boaz. Here, just behold, this person that Boaz needed to meet came by at just the time that Boaz had sat down. The address of friend here, by the way, isn't quite right. The Hebrew phrase, Peloni Amoni, is like a certain someone. That's the phrase that Boaz uses to address this man. And some think that this is what we call a farago, where two like-sounding words are put together to mean something beyond the individual meaning of either word, much like helter-skelter or hodgepodge. Some gloss this as Mr. So-and-so. So the idea here, the main point of the narrator, is that this other redeemer is not going to be dignified with a name in this story. And that's because of how he acts, as we'll see. So Boaz gathers 10 elders in verse 2, the minimum required for a quorum to conduct legal business. And we might note just as well, just in passing, how it seems with ease that Boaz gets the right people in place. And this is probably indicative of his stature in the community. You know, he, he called this man and, he, and the man sat down and then he said to the 10 elders of the city, sit down here. And they sat down. This was a man, a worthy man, as he's introduced to us in verse one of chapter two for the first time. And, and they come and they sit down. So with everyone situated, Boaz then addresses this nearer redeemer in verses three and four. And let's see what he says. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside, besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. So here Boaz is building on the laws of the Redeemer in Leviticus 25. Uh, in which a, re a redeemer, a member of the clan or the family, could buy the land of a relative who had fallen on hard times to keep the land within the clan. This was significant and important. And at this, at this point in the transaction, Mr. So-and-so is given an attractive proposition because Naomi is an old widow and will not be producing any more sons in the future who could take over this land and have it as their own inheritance. So as it stands, this man could inherit this land of Elimelech and add it to his own portfolio. Without an heir, this could become his own. And it could be a part of the greater inheritance then that he could offer to his own sons. And so with that prospect in mind, he says at the end of verse 4, I will redeem it. But then Boaz makes his critical move in this interaction in verse 5. He says, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So what Boaz does here is he links the laws about redeeming property to the laws of leveret marriage in Deuteronomy 25, in which a relative, specifically a brother, is to marry the widow of his deceased brother in order to produce offspring in the name of the deceased brother. These two dimensions, as I mentioned last week, are not put together in the Old Testament itself, 
But Ruth puts them together in chapter 3 in her bold marriage proposal on the threshing floor. And then Boaz puts them together here. He, he shows no problem with that in chapter 3. And similarly, he brings them and puts them together here in talking with the near redeemer in chapter 4. And the elders who are sitting by, you would think surely if there was a problem, if this wasn't the right custom, then surely they would speak up. Well, they don't speak up either. So our best conclusion is that the local customs of the day in this area in Bethlehem in the time when the judges ruled in Israel that these things were brought together, that this was an accepted dimension of the role of the Redeemer, not only to bring a redemption of property, but to bring a redemption of offspring as well. To redeem the land and keep it in the family also meant to raise up offspring in the name of the dead through Ruth, that they might inherit that land and keep it in the family of their, their, their father. So... It's this additional requirement that Mr. So-and-so doesn't quite like and decides, you know, I need to back out of the deal. So verse 6, he says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Well, wh why this change? I mean, he just said I'll redeem it. Well, it's, it's because things have suddenly gotten a bit murkier for his prospects. It's like no longer is this about what I can get for myself or for my own sons, but... Now I've got to pour a lot into this land and the possibility of raising up an offspring, the first son that gives, uh, that to, to whom Ruth gives birth will become the, the heir of this land and it will no longer go to my sons. And that's just a bit too much for this nearer redeemer. To perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance is an act of great sacrifice and cost. And this man isn't willing to pay that cost. This would be gain for Elimelech. But it would cost the Redeemer his resources, resources that could have been put into building his own inheritance all those years in even greater ways. Whoever does this act of redemption has to pour time and resources into the field of Naomi, has to sustain and support Ruth as a wife, and then has to hand all of this over to the first son of that union. And that meant putting in a lot and not getting as much out. So the deal has suddenly shifted for this other man as Boaz brings this to the table in verse 5. And it was just too much for him. Too much. Too risky. He was all in when it meant increasing the inheritance for himself, but he's all out when it's just about improving someone else's situation. And he reflects a very common what's-in-it-for-me approach to life that I think most of us know about quite well. It's the opposite of hesed-like thinking, actually. You know, this is like scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. This is looking at the world and at your relationships for what's in it for me. This is, a, you know, a brother saying to a sister, I'll play a game with you as long as you give me the last popsicle in the freezer. You know, I'll be, I'll be there, I'll be kind, but it's got, I've got to have something in it for myself. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke observes that this other man is willing to participate in the covenant community so long as that benefits him and his own. But when he realizes that, that it may actually cost him something, he bows out. He takes a different path, a self-centered path. And he's a foil for Boaz in this text because Boaz leaps at the opportunity to help. He heaps grain, remember in chapter 2, upon Ruth. And he goes along with the, the, the crazy proposal in chapter 3 and he sends Ruth home, not empty-handed, but with six measures of barley. And then he fulfills his promise to be right at the city gate the next morning to deal with this in a legal way. And this is uncommon redemption by Boaz. 
He takes Naomi's and Ruth's burdens upon himself. Their desperate situation becomes his own for the sake of his relative Elimelech, as well as for the sake of Ruth and Naomi. He knows that when and if Ruth has her first child, this child will be an heir for Elimelech and not for Boaz. The child will inherit the land and all of that Boaz knows and he steps in anyway, gladly it seems. A man of great character and kindness, he enters in. It's hard to imagine actually that this doesn't cost Boaz something personally as well. The, the narrative blanks on this, but Boaz is a man of such great standing that most would think that it's unlikely that he doesn't already have some sons of his own, meaning that he could either be widowed or that he could be bringing Ruth into a household in which a wife already exists, which would, of course, not be at all uncommon in the customs of the day. So he has things to lose here, but he doesn't flinch at stepping up to the plate, and he gladly takes upon himself this risk and the sacrifice in devotion to these two women and to the deceased, to Malon and Kilion and Elimelech. And it's amazing what this act of redemption does. You can follow it just, for example, in Ruth's story. She transitions from being a foreigner. You watch her status change throughout the book of Ruth. She starts out as a foreigner, then she's a, a, a handmaiden and a, a servant unel, ineligible for marriage. Then she becomes a, a servant who is eligible for marriage. And then what does she become now? a wife of a noble man in Israel. She's brought in. The foreigner has finally been integrated into the people of God in a full and complete way. It's a beautiful picture of the redemption that we are offered in the Lord Jesus Christ to become a part of the family. So when Mr. So-and-so backs out, the transfer of the rights of redemption are then in verses 7 and 8 officially passed from the nearer Redeemer to Boaz. And this is symbolized by the closer redeemer taking off his sandal and giving it to Boaz, a custom that we're told in verse 7 that is concerning redeeming and exchanging at that time in Israel. The assumption here of the narrator is that this is taking place in a time, several generations later, when his readers wouldn't know this custom any longer. Thanks be to God, because we wouldn't know it either if it wasn't for the narrator mentioning it for us as well. Though, that said, there's still a lot we don't know about this custom. Why the sandal? Why the removal of the sandal? Certainly, we wouldn't think of sealing a deal in that way in our culture. And there are theories that abound about why this is the case. Is it related to the sandal removing and the leveret marriage laws of Deuteronomy 25? Only there, the removal of the sandal is to shame a man who wouldn't take up his duty to marry the widow of his brother. Is this related to the importance of feet and shoes in some ancient property transactions? In transfer of land, the original owner would lift his foot up off of the parcel of land to be sold, and he would place the foot of the buyer onto the land to symbolically uh, to symbolize that the land now belonged to the new owner. In the Old Testament, setting foot on the land was a way of claiming ownership of the land. And perhaps these realities are reflected in this practice. In any case, whatever it may be, and it's not important that we know exactly what this sandal removal symbolism, uh, where it comes from. It is important, however, that we know that this attests to the legal transaction of rights of redeeming, in this case, from one man to another. So then in verses 9 and 10, Boaz speaks to the elders and all the people. He says, you are witnesses this day that I have done what I have done, that I have bought this land, that I have... Um, made Ruth the Moabite my wife, and that I'm going to perpetuate the name of the dead through her. We should perhaps remember at this point that in ancient Israel, to lose one's name 
was one of the great tragedies, one of the worst fates for a family. So perpetuating the name was an important and loving task, again, far more than we can appreciate today. In fact, when Saul is at David's mercy in 1 Samuel 24, this is what Saul says to David. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. This is a very big deal for families in that day. And Boaz steps in. And for his action, in verses 11 and 12, the elders and the people pray God's blessing upon this man. They recognize what an incredible act Boaz is doing here, taking the rights of redemption and redeeming not only Naomi's field, but Ruth the Moabite. And they pray God's blessing. And this blessing is the first hint of perhaps the larger purpose of God in this story. As they invoke Rachel and Leah, they say, we are witnesses, verse 11, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And we think, is it possible that Ruth would have a similar place in the history of God's people with these mothers of Israel? And then they also uh, invoke the name of Perez. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The story of Perez is another story involving leveret marriage and a righteous foreign woman, Tamar, which produced an heir whose house became great among the descendants of Judah. May this be what happens to Boaz as well. The elders and the people cry out as he shows great chesed. They praise these acts of devotion. You know, a more recent example of this kind of redemption, and there, there are many, but one uh, that's always stuck out for me is from the 1963 book Miracle on the River Kwai by Ernest Gordon. He was a prisoner of war during World War II from the Scottish army and many other Scottish prisoners were with him and they were forced into labor by the Japanese and uh, they were in Singapore and then ended up in Burma working on the Burma Railroad and they were worked literally to death day in and day out and at one point they always had to count the tools when they finished the day's work and, um, or even in the middle of the day's work to keep track of all the tools and there was a shovel missing and this Japanese guard is just irate with the prisoners. And this is how Gordon writes about it. He says he began to rant and rave, working himself up into a paranoid fury and ordered whoever was guilty to step forward. No one moved. All die, all die, he shrieked, cocking and aiming his rifle at the prisoners. And then Gordon writes, at that moment, one man stepped forward and the guard clubbed him to death with his rifle while he stood silently to attention. When they returned to the camp, the tools were counted again and no shovel was missing. Just an amazing act of uncommon redemption in an extraordinary circumstance. And what we're finding here in Boaz is another amazing act of uncommon redemption, only in a more ordinary circumstance, yet it is extraordinary kindness. He sacrifices and risks to bring about a different future for Ruth and Naomi and for the deceased. So that's the chesed of Boaz. Let's think then about the chesed of Ruth, which isn't featured in the same way that Boaz's is here in chapter four, but it is reaffirmed in this text. And I wanted to point our attention to it as we bring this series to a close, because after all, this book is named Ruth. 
She is the great, in many ways, the great hero of this story. So they marry, and just to get, they marry. In verse 13, Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. That's a big deal. I'll come back to that in a minute, but I want to skip through it for a moment. Um, they marry, and, and then the women of Bethlehem enter the scene. These are the same women that were there when Naomi, with this foreigner, came back to town. Remember in chapter 1? And they see her entering into town, and she laments her situation. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me, she says. Don't call me any more pleasant. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. And these women are back on the scene in this moment when things have changed. And in verses 14 and 15, we read this. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. They praise God for giving Naomi a redeemer. And in this case, the word redeemer is now used of the son born to Ruth and Boaz, not in its legal sense, but in the sense that this son will be the heir for Elimelech's name and he will save and deliver Naomi in her old age. He will be to her a restorer of life. But what I want to draw your attention to in these two verses is what the women say about Ruth, this amazing daughter-in-law of Naomi. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. They are reminding Naomi and all of us who are reading this amazing story that it wasn't just Boaz who displayed hesed in this story, but it was Ruth as well. For her love for Naomi is not expressed in sweet sentiments or in kind words. It's not rooted primarily in feelings, but it is rather a love that is performing acts of kindness, radical acts of kindness. We're intended, I think, here to remember her amazing commitment to Naomi in chapter 1 when she clung to her. Remember? And she said, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And, and there I will be buried. And then we remember her going out to glean. Remember in chapter 2 and pushing the limits of the law and asking for greater privileges and favors from Boaz so that she might care for and provide for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then we remember her executing the bold plan, only creating 2.0 of the plan that's more extreme more brash, more bold at the threshing floor that night, the night before. She is putting Naomi's needs first again and again. She's operating with acts of kindness again and again and again. And this chesed of Ruth is the greatest in the story, quite honestly, because she boldly and daringly initiates from a place of nothing, a place without any rights or privileges or prospects, Seven sons was seen to be the perfect household in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, not just in Israel. Seven sons was the height of blessing. But these women say that she is worth more to you, your daughter-in-law, than seven sons, Naomi. You have been so deeply blessed with this foreigner, this Moabite, this woman who has dedicated herself to the God of Israel and therefore dedicated herself to you and has given her life and poured her life out for you, Naomi, look at your lot now. Things are so different because of Ruth's value in your life. Her actions 
have brought about this moment. And her actions, if we follow this story well, they've brought out the best of the worthy man Boaz as well. In her book on Ruth, Carolyn Custis James talks about what she refers to as the blessed alliance, this relation between men and women that God always intended from the beginning of creation. Remember, he created the male and female. He created us to go out and do the work in the garden as men and women bringing unique strengths to the table together, doing the work of the kingdom. And here, James sees a wonderful outworking of this alliance as Ruth initiates at the threshing floor and Boaz responds to her initiation. Yes, Ruth, I'll get into the situation with you. Yes, I get what you're doing. I see the, I see the path you're, you're asking me to take and I'll make it happen for you tomorrow morning. Whether it's the near redeemer or me, you will have a husband. And, and Ruth's initiation kind of activates Boaz's deep character as he goes then to the city gate to take care of this. And Naomi gets in on all of this dance as well, and they make a great team together, carrying out the heart of God in the situation by doing hesed together. And it's this alliance through which God brings about the uncommon redemption of Naomi and Ruth, enacted by Boaz at the city gate. But as we come to a close, let's think about the hesed of the Lord. As you might expect, the true hero of the book of Ruth is not Ruth, or Boaz, or Naomi. But it is the Lord. It is the God of Israel. For his hand is behind this story at every point. Yet there, is, there are two moments where he comes out of the shadows into the foreground, where God is actually the subject of a verb, only twice in the book of Ruth. And they're very significant. The first is in verse 6 of chapter 1. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. God gave seed for the land to produce food and bring an end to the famine that was upon the people of Israel. And it was this intervention of the Lord that led to Naomi's return from Moab with her daughters-in-law. It was this intervention of the Lord that led to that moment, that amazing moment between Moab and Israel and Bethlehem when, when Ruth said, I will go with you. I cling to you. When we see her unbelievable commitment. And now God comes to the foreground again. And we see this in verse 13, which I've already read, but I'll read again. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Did you catch that? The Lord gave her conception. He opened Ruth's womb. Now let's remember that up to this point in the story, Ruth has been barren, married for 10 years, and produced no offspring. But the Lord intervenes in her situation. In his first intervention, he provides seed for the ground to sustain his people. In the second intervention, he provides seed for the womb to produce a son that transforms Naomi's emptiness to fullness. In verses 16 and 17, we see the son presented to Naomi. She takes him upon her bosom and became his nurse in verse 16. And by nurse here, what we should really understand is something like foster mother or caretaker. She's a grandmother here. And there are debates about whether this is meant in a legal sense or not, and we can't be certain. But what we can be certain of is that Naomi will have a central role in the upbringing of this new child, influencing him, teaching him, 
instructing him out of the lessons of her faith that have been forged in the difficulties of suffering. Remember, we began this series looking at Naomi as a female Job-like figure, only her situation even harder in many ways. And yet she's walked through this with the help of her daughter-in-law Ruth and come to a place of praising God and honoring him and now being blessed by God. Think about the lessons that she will be able to infuse into her son, her grandson, through this work. So Naomi will have the significant role. In verse 17, we're told that the women named the son Obed, which actually means servant and means he will serve Naomi and provide for her and bring an end to her bitterness. God puts his hand upon these wonderful acts of hesed by Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz in the book of Ruth, in this story. And he puts his hand upon them to bring about their desired, the desired outcome. They ultimately depend upon the direct blessing of the Lord. And we think of Psalm 127, 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It is the Lord who does the work that counts. I said at the beginning that there is hesed of the human characters in the story, and there's hesed of the Lord in the story, but there is a distinction and a difference. And let me, as we come to a close, point that out here. What is it that the kindness of the Lord does that no human kindness can do? He puts life into the dead. The God that we worship and serve, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the God of resurrection. And in both cases in Ruth, where the Lord is the direct subject of a verb, it is the Lord who puts life into places of death. First, he brings seed to the ground and brings the relief to the famine. And second, he enables Ruth to conceive and to have a son. He is the God who, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And upon this life-giving kindness of God, every single one of us deeply depends and this life-giving power of God extends still further as God takes the acts of Hesed of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and wraps them up in his larger purposes and so verse 17 and the narrative finishes with these simple words he was the father of Jesse the father of David and the closing genealogy reinforces the point that these people in ordinary everyday circumstances doing these extraordinary acts of chesed are taken up by the purposes of God, the life-giving purposes of God to bring about the birth of a deliverer. And those of you who know your Old Testament and know the narrative of David, you will know that David is a great and mighty king who delivers Israel from her enemies, who brings about peace and well-being to the nation, who expands the borders. And yet as great as David is, David himself is flawed as is everyone else, marred by the reality of sin. And what's amazing for us, the narrator didn't even know this in writing the story, but we get to see it from that fuller vantage point, is that there is a son of David, and therefore a son of Ruth and Boaz, who will be born. And we will celebrate his birth together here on Friday, on Christmas Eve. And his birth will be the result of God intervening, of God putting life into the death of the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this child will be born, the angel says to Mary, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. 
This Jesus will be the true redeemer, our redeemer, the one who looks upon our lowly estate as foreigners, as outsiders, as those who have no status and no hope and intervene at great cost to himself to change our situation. This child will grow up and die on a Roman cross. And then again, the life-giving power of the kindness of God will hover over the tomb of his dead body and bring life where there is death again, bring him back to life and overcome the powers of sin and evil and death. And so too, that life-giving kindness of God hovers over each one of us who has come to know this king by faith. We are brought to newness of life. That is a full and complete redemption. In him, Paul says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Boaz will encounter sacrifice in his own estate to bring up the status of Ruth and Naomi and the deceased. Jesus will do it so much more as the great redeemer, bringing life to those who had none. This is the work of of the kindness of God. It is to bring about the giving of life in situations of death. And that is his great work of redemption. And what's amazing, and I'll close with this, is what's amazing is that God uses, and this is one of the great lessons of Ruth, he uses the the extraordinary actions of kindness of his people, that's you and me, in the everyday ordinary circumstances of our lives to bring about his great and glorious life-giving purposes. It is not that we, through our acts of kindness, somehow add to the work, the finished work of Jesus on the cross, the redemption of Jesus that is accomplished solely by him. It is not that we add to that. It is that God chooses to use people like Ruth and Naomi. And if you feel overlooked and forgotten, I hope that you're encouraged by this story, that you're not. That God chooses to use people like Boaz when all of his privileges and, and blessings and status and wealth he deploys for the sake of those in need. That these purposes, that God's greater purposes might be carried forward and he will continue to work in that way in our day through you and through me to expand his work of uncommon redemption, of giving life to the dead for the glory in honor of his name. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this amazing little story that we've been able to sit with for four weeks. We thank you for Ruth. Amazing example. We thank you for Naomi and her struggles and wrestlings, her faith, her boldness. We thank you for Boaz. But God, above all, we thank you for those for the one to whom all of them point and the story points, the one to whom every story in the Old Testament points, your son, our savior, our great redeemer, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he impoverished himself to make us a part of your family, to make us his own, to redeem us out of sin and evil and even from death and its clutches. Oh, how we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the life that you bring. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we might walk forward as those who have received your great kindness and extend that kindness to others. In Jesus' name, amen.